Welcome to the IH Podcast, where we profile fellows of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities here at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Philip Hollingsworth. In this episode, I interview Molly Worthen, Assistant Professor of History. In our conversation, Professor Worthen discusses her latest book project on charisma in American politics and religion. We also talk about how her background in journalism led to her position as a contributing writer for the New York Times. So to start out, could you talk a little bit about your research and, and how you approach, in general, what, what you work on? I'm a historian of ideas, I guess, is the, is the broadest way to, to put it. But what does that mean? Well, I focus primarily on the history of religion in North America for the past several years. My most recent book was about conservative Christianity. Um, I guess you could say the intellectual backstory of the rise of the Christian right in the second half of the 20th century. And I have, uh, for the past decade, combined academic research on that subject with freelance journalism. So I work both in dusty archives, but also regularly I'm on the phone with real living people in, in many times in the communities that I, I study. And I've always really liked that combination because I don't come from the tradition that I've spent the most time studying myself. I didn't grow up an evangelical Christian. Okay. And so, you know, that comes with uh, advantages and disadvantages. I suppose it, it means I, I have a kind of broader perspective. Sometimes I see connections that an insider might not see, but it also means I'm not a native speaker, you could say, in the right. traditions that I that I study. So it's always helpful to sort of test some of my hypotheses in conversations with people in those communities and just kind of see how they react. And I think in the future, uh, going forward, I'm starting to to broaden out a little bit. And my, my current book project, um, I hope, is going to emerge as a big history of the idea of charisma, both as a religious concept and a political idea. And that's something that I, I got interested in, this kind of question of the interaction of, uh, of, of theology and, and uh, personal magnetism yeah. and politics. First, I suppose, in, in, my, um, in my experience observing the evangelical Christian communities I was studying. But it's, of course, a lens that you could apply to you know, any, any human context. That's kind of the broader framework I'm playing with now. So speaking of conservative Christianity, what kind of drew you to study that and, and do history on that in the first place? Well, when I got to college, I fell into some history classes, and it dawned on me pretty rapidly that although I did not come from a particularly religious background myself, that for the vast majority of human beings today and throughout history, religion has been, if not the primary, then an awfully important lens through which they've processed their world. And if I wanted to have an accurate understanding of history, then I ought to learn something about religion. And, you know, there's a lot of happenstance in one's undergraduate experience, and I fell into a great class on Russian history, and I got fascinated with uh, Russian Orthodox Christianity. That was really my first love. I spent all sorts of time learning Russian language. I lived in a rather remote part of uh, northern rural Alberta for a summer with a community of, I guess you could you could caricature them as the Russian Amish, uh, the Russian okay. Orthodox old believers who were quite isolated, really kept to a lot of, lot of old, old-fashioned uh, practices. It was very hard to break into that community. In retrospect, I see that what I was doing was kind of amateur ethnography, stumbling through. And it was my first 
time really trying to understand a religious community quite different from anything I'd I'd ever seen before, been part of. And that, that I think, turned me into a scholar of religion. Um, I took some detours. I, I, my first book was actually about diplomatic history. But then when it came time to kind of figure out what I wanted to do uh, next, you know, for my grown-up career, so to speak, I wanted to be a religion writer. I had done uh, some journalism. I had interned at newspapers and magazines. But I thought, well, I don't, I don't particularly have a lot of expertise. I need to spend some time just reading a lot of books, uh, reading the scriptures, uh, familiarizing myself in a, in a serious way so that I'm just not adding to the chaff. You know, there's plenty of mediocre religion writing out there already. And I wanted to be strategic. I, I had loads of interests. I mean, I would have been very happy to continue my study of Russian orthodoxy. I'm kind of a closet medievalist. I would have been very happy <laughs> studying, you know, 14th century Carthusian monks. But I had to think in terms of what I could sell to magazine editors. Yeah. And so I thought, well, I'll see how I like kind of planting myself in the study of contemporary Christianity in the North American context. And it turns out, I quickly learned that to understand anything about you know, conservative evangelicals in our current moment, you really have to do your homework centuries and centuries back. You have to master that whole that whole tradition to understand where some of these ideas and impulses we see today come from. So I have always been able, I found, to indulge most of my interests in, in earlier periods and where I can kind of weave that into my journalism, my analysis of contemporary religion and politics, although I'm often kind of battling with editors to get them to just let me include, you know, a couple of sentences on medieval theology or something, and sometimes they're a little resistant. It goes that far back, I promise. Right. <laughs> so this book project on charisma, could you talk a little bit more about that? The word charisma is one we use an awful lot. It's not academic jargon. It's one you see in the newspaper, but it's it's, it's actually rather vague. Mm-hmm. You know, what are we actually talking about? Are we talking about this sort of ethereal glow around, you know, leaders we admire? Are we talking about uh, the the f- sort of physicality of a of a performer, um, a relationship, you know, rather than a quality that in, that is inherent in an individual, is it a relationship between a leader and followers? Is it something that you know can be transmitted over over some media, whether it's the radio or television or or the internet? I think that these are these are questions that people have been interested in, in charisma have have been raising for a long time. Um, the concept, you know, I think is it, it, it's interesting that it, it's not a it's not one that has been part of our discussion of politics for uh, generations and generations. It has a very particular history. A particular guy, the sociologist Max Weber, took yeah. that word, which was really a kind of obscure theological term that would have been familiar to you know German theologians, you know his his colleagues in 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 theology, but but a few other people, and he borrowed it for his own analysis of politics. And before that, people would have talked about magnetism or something like that. So the concept is very old. And it comes originally from a, a particular religious context. You know, it's this idea that you see in the, in the Jewish and Christian scriptures of, of this gift by God's grace, a kind of, uh, you know, presence of, of the Holy Spirit in, in God's chosen uh, messengers. You know, that's the sense in which uh, we, we see it play out in the scriptures. And, and that's its meaning um, for, for early uh, you know, early people who are kind of using this idea to talk about some come some kind of anointed anointed leader who has this power, mm-hmm. and I'm interested in maybe starting with this 
tradition around the medieval and early modern kings of Europe, particularly uh, in England and France, known as the king's touch, in which the king was supposed to have this power to heal particular illnesses by his touch. Queens sometimes had it too, particularly this this illness of scrofula, um, which was this very um, nasty, uh, it would result in sort of uh, very ugly sores all over your face and neck. And supposedly it was believed that if you went to the king and knelt before him on one of the days when he presented himself, he would touch you and you might be healed. Now, scrofula happens to go into remission uh, sort of unpredictably with some regularity. So it lent itself to, at least from the, se- the perspective of the secular historian, to seeming like it might miraculously respond to the king's touch. But the, the way in which observers and, and people in the royal court wrote about this was very much in terms of, of the king as a divine servant, as the sort of representative of God on earth in some way, who had this gift by virtue of his office. And so you can kind of see the genealogy from that, that ancient idea of God's grace. I'm interested in tracing that from this kind of early modern context where we, we so clearly see the, the, the residue of, of religion all the way up through, you know, president, presidential candidates in the 21st century kissing babies. You know, yeah. and what is, what is the line, right? And at what point does the theology sort of morph into something that at least is no longer explicitly religious? And frankly, I, I became, I guess my interest was really piqued in the context of the last election, watching the relationship between Donald Trump and his followers at rallies, particularly when, you know, in, in talking to unsympathetic observers of Trump about their reactions to him, the last word on their lips was charisma. I mean, to to those who didn't like Trump, who don't like him, he is a bore. He he is very he has he has he repulses them. He has the opposite effect. And yet for for these people kind of in his thrall at the these political rallies, charisma, you know, it, it, it almost seems to fall short uh, in, in any attempt to describe this this magnetism and this way in which he w- he is so uh, ingeniously able to evoke certain emotions and almost read the feeling of the crowd. Um, it's very it's a very hard thing to get one's hands on, but I'm hoping that if I weave together an analysis of you know how how what do we actually see happening between leaders and followers in different contexts throughout history, alongside an investigation into how were the the thinkers of the of the time making sense of this? Were they drawing on theological ideas? Were they drawing on the latest social psychology? Then I can perhaps come up with a sort of historically cogent uh, story that yeah. that really gives us some sense of the transformation of these ideas over time. You also have a regular opinion piece in the New York Times. Yes, I'm uh, a contributing writer at the opinion page. Right. Could you talk a little bit about how that relationship and how that column developed? Well, it developed out of my freelancing work. Uh, I started writing for the New York Times magazine 10 years ago. Okay. And what I've learned in my freelance journalism career is that so much depends on your relationship with editors. And so I ended up writing for the magazine for a few years, in part because there was an editor who, who with whom I had a connection, who liked my ideas and my and my writing style. 
And you find editors like that simply through perseverance. I mean, I, I've sent so many cold pitches, you know, to, to editors I've never met. I maybe reverse engineered their email address from clues on the internet. Yeah. Um, and eventually you do that enough and you sort of figure out how to, how to sculpt the right pitch email to appeal to editors who are just skimming it quickly or tend to be very conservative and, and that they're very risk averse, you know, they're yeah. uncertain about trying uh, someone they don't know. Uh, eventually you land on someone's desk who is sympathetic. But that editor didn't stay there forever. He, uh, he moved on and um, I ended up I think I sent another cold email. I had an idea for an op-ed, and that ended up forwarded to another editor who happened to oversee part of the opinion page. And he he really became my advocate. Uh, so that I mean that has been a big part of it. And I developed too, I guess, a habit of mind that I, I try to encourage my colleagues and my graduate students to to foster too, because I think that it, it does us all a lot of good to simply try to train myself to see connections between my own expertise, whatever it may be, and and current events. Uh, you know, I keep a, a word document of story ideas where I just I just try to jot down. I try to visit it at least once a week to put down anything, even if it's totally half-baked, that seems like it yeah. might might be a connection. I've also begun to understand my, uh, my bailiwick, my beat, if you will, in journalism as pretty broad, much broader than my academic expertise. So I write about things for the newspaper that I have not published on as a as an academic historian. I mean, I wrote an op-ed on the history of Canadian healthcare. You know, I've written about mm. Catholics and Mormons, who I don't you know I don't tend to write too much about in my academic work. But editors, of course, at newspapers don't don't see you know you're not that interesting to them as an academic if you're the only thing you're comfortable writing about is this tiny little sliver, right? Which seems to them very narrow. We seem so over specialized to people outside the ivory tower. So it's important, I think, to sort of get over one's imposter syndrome and just, you know, I've learned to tell myself, well, if this is a subject I'm not an expert in, I know what it means to learn something well enough to, to write about it responsibly. So if I don't know it, I know who to talk to. I can call up my colleague at X university who's written that book and yeah. I can quote them and, you know, I know how to do that work. And I think that that, that can carry you a, a long way. And so now I, I write, I'm supposed to write a piece for them about every other month and um, it's really, I really, I really enjoy it. I see it as sort of an extension of both my, both my teaching as well as my research. I, each one is a mini research project, and I always learn something new. So um, it's as valuable to me as, as anything else I do. What's a book that changed your life? Wow. A book that changed my life. Gosh, that's the sort of question you should give people, people warning, warning of before you spring it on them. Um, that's why we like to not do it. <laughs> well, you know, I this is I don't know if this is I'm sure I'll think of a think of 10 answers, you know, after this conversation, but a book that made an enormous impression on me is a a, a book, it's a it's a memoir of um a very difficult largely failed expedition to Antarctica called The Worst Journey in the World by a uh, a British writer named Apsley Cherry Gerard, wow. who accompanied um, uh, what Robert Falcon Scott on uh, on one of his failed missions, and the title sums it up. Um, it is an incredibly harrowing account of of the the 
miseries and trials and and injury and death uh, involved in that that amazing kind of early 20th century heyday of polar exploration when these bands of men you know seeking yes fame and fortune but also seeking simply to advance the bounds of knowledge and show what humans were capable of yeah. undertook these ridiculous expeditions at great personal cost you know it, it, in the best case scenarios you know all all the dogs always die and often you know many of the humans as well and it's written by a young um a, a guy who at, who at the time was a was a kind of young assistant who was there to assist the, the main biologist on the trip and he talks about you know basically crawling in to- the total darkness of arctic winter to collect these obscure penguin eggs you know this one kind of penguin only roosted in this particular particularly remote place you know and they're yeah. they're risking life and limb and, and you know you don't know if they're going to make it and um and of course robert falcon scott came to a very ugly and, um, you know, he, he and, and his last companions, you know, froze to death. That was one of the first polar memoirs that I read, and I'm a polar memoir junkie. And I think it's because I'm such a physical coward myself. Yeah. I'm an incredible physical chicken. And and I am so I am so borne away by these accounts of, of physical bravery and stamina, but I'm also so inspired by this sort of me- – the, the 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 scientific machismo of um, of these Edwardian uh, polar explorers and their devotion yeah. to this ideal. You know, of course, there's all, all sorts of ways in which I could be a, a critical historian and peel apart the hierarchies and the assumptions and their race, racist ideas about the Inuit. You know, the ones who are who are in the Arctic. But I don't like to do that when I'm reading. I just like to be carried away by the by the adventure. So yeah. that's my answer. I think I'm the same way about like things in space because I'd mm. be so afraid to be out there because there's there's no going back <laughs> absolutely alright well thank you very much that was great thank you this was fun check back at ih.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall you can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website as well as iTunes SoundCloud and Stitcher Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IAH underscore UNC.